It's who's round. He's Toby Haydock. He was the presenter all the time. Okay, my name is Adrian Gibbs, and I was an actor with Doctor Who back in the seventies, I think. Well, it was the it was the eighties, early. Oh, was 80s. it really? Yeah. All right. And okay. your best, I think, you're best known for your second part. Yes. Which, which we will come to later because that's right. Uh, even though you've been in a documentary about Doctor Who, mm. I don't think I've ever heard or seen you talk about your first brush with Doctor Who, which is as Rysick in part one of Full Circle, where you give chase to. Uh, fledgling companion Matthew Waterhouse and uh, well, let, have fun on location. Let me la elaborate. Um, I was doing cabaret in Theatre Cluid Mould and my agent auditioned and I got cabaret playing Rysik. Absolutely fine. And then on my own back I decided to send a photograph, a headshot to uh, the Doctor Who a production company didn't heard for a few I didn't hear for a few days and then I phoned them up the production company Doctor Who and I spoke to Peter Grimwade's secretary and we I floated on the phone phone and I said to her oh I don't know I'm not working that much I'm a poor actor can you put it on the on the top of the pile and next day I got an interview with Peter Grimwade and I got the part of Rysik because it clashed with rehearsals of cabaret I gave it to my agent I said look I've got cabaret I'm up at theatre Cluid for six months or six weeks whatever and I said look I've got you Doctor Who please do something Hazel Malone by the way and she said, oh, we're sorted out. I've given, now I've given her Doctor Who. She might do something for me. And so in the rehearsal days, it clashed a little bit with the rehearsal days in Cabaret clash with the production days of Full Circle playing Rysik. And she made it happen. So therefore, I was let off from rehearsals to come down to London to do um, playing Rysik production days. Typical actor's life though, isn't it? No job, no job, two jobs. Yeah, but when you <laughs> give an agent a job, yes, she was very happy. Of course. And then by some coincidence, after I finished production days with playing Rysik and Doctor Who, um, Peter Grimwade, unfortunately, is now no longer with us asked me to play The Watcher, which I wouldn't be seen because it would be sort of like um, Invisible Man. Mm. And I was the same height as Tom Baker, Tom. And yeah, a few, month, uh, a few weeks later, I played The Watcher. And that's the reason I did it. <laughs> it was wonderful. Well, I mean, it's, 
I think for a certain generation, and that's my generation, Tom Baker had been our doctor. Absolutely. Tom Baker's last story was a massive milestone. Absolutely. And a key element yeah. of that is this weird figure yeah. beckoning across. The, yes. It's a really yes. great, it's a great costume. So how was it to wear? Because it looks it looks quite simple well, but fantastic. Absolutely. Um, well, the makeup uh, and also no, I had a I had a skull done, which BBC probably still have, of my face, everything, and that was done, and. Once I got the skull down my face and everything, they put um, muslin all over, like an invisible man. And that's how it was created at BBC uh, makeup and costume department. And because I'd done playing Rice before, I wasn't recognised mm. in the next story, which happened to be Lollapologos. Yeah, Logopolis. Logopolis, whatever. Yes, 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 yes. And so it was nice for Peter Grimray to ask me. I was the same height as Tom. And uh, that's the reason why I did it. What sort of fellow was P Peter Grimway? Because he was an excellent director. I mean, yes, he was. Nods, but uh, quite a lot of actors that work with him. And some of the footage that existed mm. in the studio suggests he's, he's actually quite difficult with actors. Or he's, he's, his communication is such that he's so focused on the shots that sometimes the acting... Or the actors felt a bit secondary. Yes. He was very focused on the shots. But the thing is, I mean, with me, uh, there was no problem. I, he directed and I did exactly what he said. So therefore, for me, it was no problem. And to be asked to play the watcher from him was incredible. And also, again, I gave it to my agent. Because, uh, look, I've got you, Doctor Who, and <laughs> I'm doing another story called Lollapologos. Yeah. And yeah, Tom was absolutely great. I never... Uh, sorry. Peter. Peter, yeah. yeah. Uh, Peter Grimm was fine. No problem at all. And what, well, and what about Tom? Of course, it was his last season as the yes, Doctor. Yes, it was. As the longest-running Doctor. Absolutely. So, uh, so how was Tom? Tom was absolutely brilliant. Because in rehearsals, sometimes, said, Adrian, let's go to the pub. And come back, and he's absolutely fine, spot on, absolutely spot on, and uh, we got on very well. I can't say any better than that. I, I, the, the more I sort of speak to people who worked in in, in Doctor Who, and certainly just I think just at the BBC mm. in the seventies and eighties, is that everyone seemed to go to the pub at lunchtime. I think it's something that's been lost from the acting career is that you're not allowed to go to the pub at lunchtime <laughs> anymore. But all the work was still great. In North Acton, at the rehearsal rooms. Uh, we did go to the pub. That was one of the things. We ate, we went to the pub, and we timed everything to go back, and absolutely fine. There was no problem about going to the pub. And I, as an actor, I mean, there were, um, there were other things going on at the same time. Are you being served in another rehearsal room? <laughs> and uh, we all used to meet in a canteen. And some of us went to the pub, ate, and later on went to the pub and came back. Everything was fine. I, I mean, you must have thought the world was your oyster then as a young... And it seems to be, especially something like Full Circle, there are lots of very young, mm. handsome men acting on telly. It must have been a laugh. It was. And the thing is, um, what I loved about it, people were so kind, because as a musical um, actor doing West End stage and doing lots of repertory... And then starting off in television, 
it was my oyster because I learned from Tom Baker. I learned from camera angles. I learned for everything where to stay, where to react and counter react. I learned a lot from Doctor Who. Then I want to do. Then I went on to do other television roles. And were you aware when you were doing the almost impronounceable log Logopolis? Mm. It's catching that. Um, that it was quite a milestone show because it was Tom's last one and that you were playing quite a key part in his transformation. I was very young <laughs> and I didn't realise that at all at the time. But when I, when I went on to do other roles in television, film and theatre, um, I thought a lot about it. I thought that's a bit of a milestone, yes. Mm. But I learnt a lot, which is the mo most important thing. Especially when you do television, mm. you have to learn. And I watched Tom and I watched other actors how to do it. And it was a stepping stone. And what, what sort of things did you, what sort of technical things did you learn? Is it, is it possible to explain how, what, okay. what the things you pick up on the floor are? Okay. Reaction and counter-reaction. In other words, somebody does something and you think pause and react but the thought process is wonderful when you see somebody so experienced as Tom Baker that you learn how to do it because you haven't got second take or third take you just have to do it because of no time and what I learned is just how to react and also how to get the lines out and mean the thought behind what you're saying, as I learned when I did theatre. Voices going. So, well, take us back, <coughs> Adrian, because yep. we've talked about where you, you know, getting, getting Doctor Who, but mm. was, was acting always going to be the thing? And how did you get to the position where you were a young actor who was, who's, you know, what, what, what had been the process of you becoming an actor? And was that, what was your background? Was that always going to be the way? I'm going to be very quick. Yeah. I trained uh, Legat, Russian ballet, and I was in Stuttgart at 17, 18, 19 as a professional quarter ballet dancer. Then I left and I went to South Africa and became a professional quarter ballet dancer. After one and a half years, I broke my contract and went to London, came back to London, and started doing Arlene's Phillips's classes, changed from ballet to jazz and getting into repertory theatre, getting my equity card and doing loads of repertory as an actor. And also getting into shows like Billy with Michael Crawford, Elaine Page and learning my craft as a musical theatre dancer actor. And uh, that was a big stepping stone. And also actually learning a repertory, three-week uh, sorry, three week repertory, Nottingham Theatre, Exeter Theatre, Colchester Theatre, keep going. And I learnt my craft, how to be an actor. So it's from dance, mm. professionally, to an actor. In repertory theatre, which unfortunately we don't have so much now, I learned my craft. And therefore I got in... I did a West Side Story playing Bernardo down in Worthing and I did loads of 
needs. No, you see, if you forgive the phraseology, mm. um, knowing and committing to the fact that you want to be a ballet dancer at the age of 17 must take balls of steel. Surely, because because for, of, yeah, for, well, even earlier, because yeah, of, yeah. because of, well, you don't yes. need me to explain all yes, the majority yes, yes. aspects Absolutely, of what yeah. masculinity is and, and, and from, from parents and friends and peers and all that sort of thing. So, so it's seen as something that's mm-hmm. quite fey and yet to commit to it must, determination. must take a lot of determination. Yeah, because I knew I could do it. Mm-hmm. And um, again, it's a long story. I was born in Johannesburg. And uh, my parents got bankrupt, came to you. We're from UK, by the way. My dad hated <clears throat> living in this country, so uh, twenty. They were twenty-three, and I went to Johann. They went to Johannesburg. I was born. He went bankrupt, came back to UK, and I got into Legat Ballet Russian, Russian ballet school called Legat, because I knew I wanted to dance. And I was there for five years with Madame Legat, and I was fortunate enough and good enough to get to Stuttgart Ballet. This is going back to 1969, something like that. And after being five years training as a, a ballet dancer professionally, I decided to leave Stuttgart and get into the South African Ballet Company. Doing the same ballets, Giselle, uh, Swan Lake, Firebird, uh, and the quarter ballet. If I'd stayed, uh, if I'd stayed, sorry, I had a bit of soloist, but I was frustrated. I was 23, so I came back to London and uh, started to Arlene Phillips classes at the dance center and Matt Maddox and started to change from ballet to um, jazz. And also, I, during that time, I got to do a show called the 1984 David Barry Floor Show, and Matt Maddox got me into that. So I worked with David Barry. Wow. Yep. And that was at the Marquee Club, and with... Marion Faithful with Paul McCartney with David and it was wonderful I was only about 25 by then and going from ballet to jazz so it was wonderful I got it there were six dancers behind David and we did the Marquee Club once with nobody and the second time with an audience of 200 and um, it was good for NBC because David did not want to come across the ocean. Um, <clears throat> sorry, he did not want to go to America, so they came here. NBC came here to film it. And that was at the Marquee Club, and that was 79, whatever. But it was called the 1984 David Barry Floor Show, which NBC had never shown it here. Oh, really? Mm. Oh. Well, we've seen it, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Marion Faithful, Paul McCartney, Amanda Lear, loads. So fun was being had. Yeah. But you. <laughs> My know career it. was yeah starting yeah. But of course, you know, as a <clears throat> as a dancer, that that is finite. So, um, was was the acting 
a way of ensuring that your career would have more to it? Doing repertory. <coughs> Doing repertory, uh, three, uh, three weeks repertory, that did it. Because if you do repertory, you do one play, then you rehearse during that play for another play, and or, or musical, whatever. I started off in musicals. So therefore, once you get into that repertory contract for three uh, weeks, whatever, you get into that. So when you do a musical like Cabaret, you start learning for um, Galileo. And then during that, you're starting for the next. It's called three-week rep, which we don't have anymore. No, no. But it's a learning curve. Well, and not and just, you learn. And not just, uh, you've got your scrapbook here. Mm. Um, is that you on a bridge too far? Yep. Yeah, my goodness. So a movie. I was there for three months. Wow. Yep. Wow, and how was that? That was fantastic because, again, as filming is a different learning curve. And I auditioned three times to get a bridge too far. And then Hazel Malone, my agent at the time, um, out of the blue, for me, Adrian, uh, your, your car's coming tomorrow because you're, you're going to Holland to shoot a bridge too far. Wow. <laughs> and then eventually, after like uh, two and a half months, um, you are part of that. This is Peter Quince. Oh, yes. Actor. Yeah. This is me. Yeah. And this is Robert. Extra, extra. And, and Stuntman behind. By Robert. And I was, Robert Redford. Yes. Yeah. And I was, yeah, I was with him to the very end. Robert Redford. Peter and I were with him to the very, very end of that particular film. Yeah. Yeah. And we learnt a lot. Okay. Filming. Imagine being in Holland for two and a half months or three months, whatever. One day you're a Nazi and one day you're an American, one day you're British. But then when it comes to the last three weeks, I am uh, an American GI, 101st um, Airborne um, Division. And I'm with Robert Redford and, um, and Peter to the very, very end. Fantastic. And from that, and you, I mean, and then I, you learn a lot. I bet you do. I bet yeah. you, do, do you learn much from like, playing Super Nasty and Rent a Ghost? <laughs> <laughs> oh, with Sue Nicholas. Yeah. Who's in, uh, yeah, in she's in Corrie, yeah. She was wonderful, absolutely. Because the thing is, I played Super Nasty, and she was lovely. We went to the back of the coach and we went through the script. It was like very quick and said the lines and all that. And then, um, yeah, just did it. And that was with uh, Rentico, that's correct. Yep. And everything's down there. Yeah, you've got, you, so you keep a, you've kept a scrapbook. Um, yep. yep. Did you, because I, I think with telly, it's, um, especially if you've been brought up, I guess, you've learned you, you trade in front of a live audience. Mm. Do you miss the buzz of that when you're doing yes. something like television? Yes, 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 I do. I mean, the thing is, because I haven't acted for a long time, but I remember in do, just doing Billy, when we got with Mike Crawford, um, the coach loads, we used to get 2,000 people a night. And you've got to be spot on. You have, well, as everybody knows, if you do a West End show, it's eight performances, yeah. and you've got to be absolutely dead on. There's, no, there's nothing else. And so therefore you have discipline, 
And also, I love the buzz. Yeah. 2,000 people every night. Yeah. For a year and a half, whatever. Yeah. So you work with all these amazing people, you're right. Mm. So I think any good actor learns people from are people. other good actors. Mm. Um, but who, were the, who would you say were the biggest talents then you worked with that you just were in awe of, just in terms of what they did? Mm. That's a difficult one. I'm not going to say something. <laughs> not Michael Cole. Sorry. No, can you ask? Not him. Um, who? I guess Tom Baker, because he actually rebelled against what was what the directors thought. But I admire him for actually standing up for actors. Actually, so he was one of my uh, heroes as far as acting because he stood up. And yes, he took the consequences sometimes, but he, people believed in him. And also the audience believed in him. Absolutely, absolutely. So therefore, yes, he was one of my favourite. So, okay, so after Doctor Who, you, you've, you've alluded, you've already mentioned that you, you haven't acted for a while. So, mm. so what was it that made you move away from acting and, and tell us about the other stuff that you've done? Ah, ah, that's a different... <clears throat> Just because I wanted to travel, that was simply that. I decided that um, because all the time when I was acting, I built up a professional model portfolio. And I wanted to travel, I had itching bug. So therefore I decided, yeah, okay, when this business gives me up, or I give them up, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna model. and. You think it's easy, but it's not. You get a bloody good agent, and then you've got to work very hard to get a really strong book portfolio. And, uh, yeah, it took me a while to do that. And also, I just wanted to travel. My agent thought I was mad. But, uh, yeah, I got my book together and also got a good agent. Um, Askew, model, Models One. And um, got into modelling for five years and travelled a lot. And then I decided, okay, change careers a bit because I, as a kid I did photography and I still had the basics. So I started shooting models in, Mil uh, in Madrid uh, of other act, uh, sorry, of other models. And I thought, yeah, that'd be great. So I did some photographs of other models, went back to my mother agent in UK, London, and uh, my agent loved them, so I started doing photography. So you went from one side of the camera to, to the other? Absolutely, because I knew the other side very much. Mm -hmm. But then I had to learn how to. I knew how models work, I knew actors work, I knew that because I'd done it. So therefore it's easier if you're being on the other side of the camera. So therefore, you, you, you have a apathy. And also, you know also a little bit how they're going to react and counter-react um, in front of the camera. And that's when I built up a really good portfolio as a photographer. I wonder, as, a, as an actor, I, mm. you, you, one always looks at the, the modelling industry and it seems to the mm. outsider no, that it's, it's, it's slightly more impersonal no, than, than, not, than, no. than acting is. You, you've got to, as an actor, yes, you bring out a performance, 
but even as a model you've got to bring out their personality and the way you want them to to be you can do styling do makeup you do everything but in the end it comes from them mm. and you've got to bring out that so in almost you you're directing as a photographer you've got to direct them and even sometimes Sometimes you have to sort of instigate, agitate, incredibly, something very stupid. But you have to really bring out their performance. Because there is a different level of performance, like an actor. Mm. Exactly the same. But it strikes me as slightly different in the sense that, because actors, we have all these tools. Mm. And with modelling, it strikes me, and mm. correct me if I'm wrong, no, no. modelling, it seems to me, you have to have neutrality behind which is whatever the attitude come, that comes out, without the face pulling, without the... the I don't know, it's, it seems that modelling a lot more comes from stuff that you can't quite see or define, if that makes mm. any sense. Mm. No, I understand. And I, don't, and I don't have an angle on how you do that. Because it's not my trade, obviously. No, obviously not. Um, because, again, as an actor, I know the sort of thought, thought processes... Mm -hmm. And what to say, how to react, not react, and all that. But as a, as a model, you're thinking about the clothes, you're thinking about the stylist, and you've got to take the makeup artist, you've got to take the um, stylist, you've got to take the model, which is the most important, and you've got to put everything together, and you've got to make it work. I mean, sometimes I go into the mode of that. I'd love it to be sort of not just angry, but a off. Off shot, mm -hmm. and she knows, or he knows, a off shot. Yeah, and you know, so I have to sort of instigate, and they know exactly what I'm talking about. A good model knows exactly, and that doesn't happen with, with just somebody comes off the street. No, no, no that's something sure. who knows, and that's where good models, and not bad, but people who don't understand. So therefore, I have to instigate, like, like, a, like a, a catalyst. Mm. Like a creative catalyst. Yeah, yeah, You've never yeah, been yeah. far away from creativity. No, never, never, ever. Well, yes, indeed. You, 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 so, but beyond, photog my painting, yeah. beyond photography, then, we're surrounded by, uh, by your paintings as well. So was that something you've always done, or was that a natural progression from It's a natural progression. I've always done it. Mm -hmm. I've always done it. I mean, yes, I mean, those are my photography ones. Yeah. But the rest, oh, that photographer, the rest of my paintings. So it's always been creative. Yeah. No less, no more. St and still doing it. And still doing it. Paint. Draw. And where do you get, what, what, what is it you, because obviously this is a, 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 an audio podcast, so what yep. is it you paint and draw and how do you get your inspiration? <sighs> inspiration, my God. <coughs> I can look on a, on a pavement. As somebody said the other day, you could be at a prison with nothing. Then you look at certain creaks in the wall or you look at certain shadows and you can get inspiration. In other words, inspiration comes just by observing and looking. So it's, yes, I go to Spain sometimes. I go to Italy, which I love. And yeah, somebody... Um, drop something and I look and I keep that in in mind because <laughs> maybe I want somebody to bend over and drop something but the thing is it's it's just 
a creative thing. I don't know where it comes from. No. But I, I know that I can create something out of nothing. That's, that's well, not a bad way to spend a life to have been... And that's what I like about this podcast, is that, you know, we spot you over the Barnet Bypass in a white outfit beckoning the doctor. Yes. And, yes. and, you've, and But you've, 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 you've spent your whole life creating in different forms. Yes. So do you feel fairly fulfilled Correct. about your work life? Yeah, but the, yes, yes I do. And the other thing is, is to keep creating, because that's what I do. Mm. Um, whether it's acting, whether it's dancing, whether it's... Um, just something out of nothing, out of the air, or just, just a pencil, a line, or anything. It is called a creative um, attitude. And do you have any any? And acting, ambitions? acting is uh, because I've just done a, um, a whole series of uh, pictures of a, a girl from school called Tasha Winnett, and she's uh, very very good. She's like. Uma, sorry, Uta Lempa, oh. and she's doing uh, she's doing a cabaret thing, and I'm taking photographs of her and her back, and that's more creative. That's wonderful. Yeah, creative. yeah. Have you heard of U Uta Lempa? I know Uta Lempa. Yes. Yeah. Of course, yes. She's very similar to that. <laughs> so I'm doing pictures of her and her band. Yeah. Fantastic. It's the latest thing. And do you have any uh, any unfulfilled ambitions? Anything that you would like to? Say if I was to come back and we were to have a glass of wine in ten years' time. Studio. With your own. Yep. On maybe the Mediterranean because the light's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Okay. <laughs> Wouldn't that be everybody's ambition <laughs> to have their own studio on the Mediterranean because the light's wonderful. Mm. Yeah. But also to keep in contact with people, energy. That I mean, you've got to keep up the energy, and and also see people's reactions, their behaviour. I'm always analytical. Okay, observer. Because well, yeah. I, I know that you attended a Doctor Who signing recently. Mm. So what what energy do you get, and how do you analyse the, the 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 people that still sort of fan the flames of Doctor Who? You know, fifty years after it started. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> surprise! Literally, I only I've only been to one. And I thought that was incredible, that people still love Doctor Who, and I think that's, I think that's wonderful, and I'm very pleased that they do, because um, it's it's all to do with imagination, and if Doctor Who creates imagination in people, I think that's wonderful, and if it, you know the people come to sign whatever. As long as they keep going with imagination, and it's also storytelling, and that's lovely. And I, I can't say any more about that because I feel I'm proud to be the, that part of the story. And can you? I mean, I don't know when you last saw uh, your, yourself in it, but if you if you were to look at it, would you be able to? Dis, dis, is it like it's somebody else, or can you can you it's transport like, yourself back there? I can. I can because I can remember. Yeah, it was bloody cold. Are you talking about uh, the watcher? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's cold. But the thing is, I thought, yeah, uh, why not do it? Um, I like to be with Tom, 
because he's a great fellow. He's a great actor to work with. And yes, it was cold. Yes, so what? But he was a nice person to work with. I always feel it was a shame because I'm guessing to sort of retain the mystery as to who he was, you don't get a credit on the episodes, which is a bit of a shame. Uh, but, but the thing about Doctor Who fans is we all know who you are, so exactly. it's okay. <laughs> so, but why not have the mystery? Absolutely, that's, that's true. Tomby, uh, sorry, Toby, why not have the mystery? And the mystery is the element of people's imagination. Well, you should have denied me this interview, you see. And say, <laughs> I, I, I will only speak as the watcher, and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't exist. <laughs> well, look. Um, yeah. Oh, well, it's a well, I, I will round us off anyway for the final, the final bits, which are you have kindly donated your time for free. I don't get paid for this. So um, we're going to go and have a spot of lunch then as scant recompense for your um, kindness. So I'm going to ask you, Adrian, what charity would you like to benefit from? Macmillan. Macmillan. Indeed. I think it's probably the thing that affects, it unites us all, doesn't it? It affects yeah. everybody yeah. Uh, to some degree or another. Yes. And uh, the final question is yep. that this podcast was initially conceived to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who. Doctor Who fans listen to it. What is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there uh, as we celebrate 50 years and beyond of Doctor Who? I would like the Doctor Who would go on forever because it's a lovely story of imagination. Well, and I, I think that's the only time I can do this is to say I'd like to thank Adrian Gibbs, and he was the Doctor all the time, which is, of course, what they say yes. about the Watcher. So, Adrian Gibbs, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was brilliant. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Because I mean, Doctor Who's just the imagination. That's all you have to do. Absolutely. Thanks to Adrian, uh, whose charity is one that has benefited from this podcast often, and uh, I hope can do so again. Macmillan Cancer Support, uh, Macmillan, M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N, macmillan.org.uk. If you can give, that would be lovely. Um, My thanks to Adrian, of course, and to uh, Phantom Films, who have passed on a number of missives from me to people like Adrian, um, and, you know, Paul and Dexter from Phantom have said very nice things about me. They've lied. They've lied in order to interest people like Adrian, who then drop me a line and say they would uh, they would take part in this. So, um, and quite a lot of contributors have been um, have been gathered that way by Paul and Dexter from Phantom. So, many thanks to them, and many thanks to you for listening. And I hope you can do so again next time. Cheerio. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Survivors, Series 7. This is a photograph. It's Peter. I recognise him. This is wonderful. We should go outside, where we can talk properly. We're facing disaster. 
The Retworth deal. <laughs> deal with the devil, more like. What choice do we have? All those good people. Gone. But I'm still here. Why? Why are you so frightened? They'll make me go back there. Please don't send me back. The best of us get called up to heaven and the rest, well... Well... We're in hell, aren't we? We're driving to the fire! I'll catch you out! You can't! Everything's burning! He knows that a steam engine can transport supplies nationwide and feed everyone. But that's good. Feed everyone at a price. I've spent so long. I mean, if this is the end, I really need to know. Big finish. We love stories.